and uh, yeah, we had, um, I managed to score some hand puppets, and one of them was a pirate, and she immediately named it Pirate Pete, and we, we managed to record one of her running the Pete the Pirate puppet. It was great. It was great. Some real gems yep. came out of that head, I'll tell you. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. It's really incredible. Yeah. You know, a thing that's been quite surprising to me is because as you grow older, and as you mentioned, the the things that encumber our, our imagination, mm -hmm. I've come to learn that there, there are these really interesting choices that we make as adults that... Encumbrance is a choice that we've made. So I watch my daughter just go off into this magical world and there's a real familiarity to it. Mm -hmm. I guess the only way to describe it in the context of this conversation is childlike. Mm -hmm. I like just fantastical, weird, incredible things. But before her, before I like, gave myself permission almost like watching her just be like oh she like you say i don't give a fuck really yeah um the, it was still a very vivid imagination but it was there was more of a box around it but watching the freedom has opened up my own it's been really interesting mm -hmm. and i think part of that i don't think i would have given myself as much permission to play closer to her level when I was with her when she was younger if I had not uh, been exposed to improv mm. because Make, yeah, 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 it's, yeah. it's kind of liberating to watch a bunch of adults on stage be children be cho yeah. yeah not think about what they're doing or saying and giving themselves permission to play. And um, one of the reasons why I was very much interested in seeing whether improv principles could be uh, taught in the workplace to try to open up people's imaginations is because, like, you wouldn't even think about the idea of playing at right. work. Right. And yet we are our most creative when we're playing. Yeah, at joy. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. That's uh, a motivation, a motivating thing to tell someone who's struggling with improv, who's struggling to let it go, mm -hmm. is the story that I became a better grandfather after doing improv because then I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Episode 31 of Dark Bots. Boop. Beep, boop, boop. Podcast boop. called Talk Bot. <laughs> you're, not, you're not into the whole intro thing anymore? No. I'm, no? You've no. grown tired of it? I have grown tired You've of grown it. You've grown tired yeah. of it. Yeah. The, uh, the joke has ran itself out. Oh, wow. Okay. Podcast is still Talk Bots, but... You know, right. with the advances of AI, you uh -huh. have to fucking talk like that. It's almost robot racist, the way you're doing it. 
Really? Yeah, man. Get woke. <laughs> Speaking of AI, at work, at work, um, somebody from the safety department said, "I have to develop a, a short course on line of fire." You know, when things start going places and you're in the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there have been some issues. I was like, okay, well, he, I wanted to see if I could do him a favor and maybe get some of the content ready for him. Mm-hmm. And I had the time, so I just went, hmm, okay, I've got chat GPT open right now. <laughs> I have the time to ask one question. <laughs> uh, so I did. Yeah. I asked it. I asked it two consecutive questions, and I can't remember exactly what words I used, but they were something to the effect of, um, what are the salient points of uh, the concept of line of fire in the workplace? And it literally created like a three-quarter page summarization of it. And then I followed that up with, okay, if I was going to um, write a short course about this topic, uh, what are the things, the most important things everybody needs to keep in mind about line of fire? And boop, 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 it just it just did it. Mm-hmm. And so I took those words verbatim, put them in slides, <laughs> had a computer voice, which I have a program for, narrate the slides, um, and then uh, I recorded some videos offline that he had chosen uh, that would sort of finish off the, the course and then showed it to him. And he was just like, holy crap, man. And I went, yeah. He goes, that, how did you do that? And I told him. And he was like, holy shit, man. <laughs> but um, yeah. So I developed my first piece of course content purely from AI cool. chat. I thought that was pretty cool. I had a, something I know nothing about. Yeah, that's really neat. That's really neat. I was talking to a friend this week, and uh, she told me uh, ChatGPT wrote her master's thesis. Get out the whole thing. The whole thing. Oh my god. She she and all she did was proof it. Proof it yeah. and write and write it uh, bits in her a little bit in her in her own voice. Yeah. So but that it wrote the whole thing. Uh, wow. Wrote the whole thing. That's great. Yep. And it got a very good mark. <laughs> it, yeah, she said it wasn't hard to defend at all. <laughs> okay, good. Well, that's nice. And see, I don't actually have a problem with that. No. Because you can't actually, even if you're letting an AI produce the content itself, you still need to know what the hell you're talking about. Absolutely. In order to... Especially at that level. ...make the thesis sound like it's your voice. But there's only so many ways to state facts pertaining to what you need to talk about. I you thought know? it was really cool. So I told her I was going to... I think that's pretty amazing. I told her I was going to call the school, but... <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's any problem with having an assistant, because that's exactly what that is. It's just having an assistant. Right. Yeah. You tell your assistant to do the dirty, shitty job. It'd be no different than having a study partner and saying, help me write this thesis. Except that this one's nearly infallible. <laughs> nearly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And really fast. And But it's not completely infallible. No. 
Oh, and that's you, you need to be it. able to spot the mistakes. Yeah. And then you're golden. Yeah. And if you didn't know your shit, you wouldn't be able to pull that off in anyway. I agree. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, any book stories? Any book reports? Man, I've been doing some real light reading. Uh, a book, I just finished it today. It was called The Rape of Nanking. Okay. Hell oh, yeah. Light reading. Oof. It was not enjoyable to read mm. at all. It was very difficult. In yeah, it doesn't sound like something I would enjoy reading. No, no, probably not. Basically, uh, in 1937, for six weeks, the Japanese took over the capital of China at the time, Nanking, mm -hmm. um, and killed between three and four hundred thousand yeah. people, yeah. civilians, yeah. thousands of rapes a day. Real atrocious shit. Yeah, and so the first part of the book was about the actual atrocities. Oh, the second part was about the people who tried to help and how the, the world saw it mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. And then the last part was basically how the world behaves now towards it. And specifically how Japan deals with it. Now, my, I know of the invasion of China by Japan, mm -hmm. but that's where my knowledge ends. I don't know what precipitated it. I don't know what the world thought of it while it was happening. But I have this feeling that the world really didn't pay much attention to it. No, they didn't really. They, they were kind of like, they didn't oh, fine, really invade yeah. China? Yeah. Whatever. It wasn't a real have big fun. deal. Have fun. Yeah. Because yeah. the Japanese have already fucked with Korea. And they've already had one war. This was the second Sino-Japanese war. Mm -hmm. uh, and Time period? 37. Oh, the first one I don't know, but this is 1937. 37. So before the Second World War broke out. Before it broke yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, the way the Japanese tell it is they just, <laughs> is that they believe that they're all Asian brothers, but China's just been misbehaving, so Japan is the big brother that has to go in and give them Teach a, them a lesson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By committing significant atrocities. Mm -hmm. And still to this day deny that it even happened. But correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't know how much you know about the other kinds of battles, uh, etc., and violent um, events that have taken place in China's and Japan's history. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, like, all the dynasties in China had a habit of when a new dynasty won over the mm -hmm. reigning dynasty. Yeah. They didn't just take over. They fucking destroyed mm -hmm. everything. Yep. Yeah that the previous dynasty accomplished. Yep. It's probably destroyed. Very... Yeah. Which is why, you know, they've been slowly finding evidence of very ancient dynasties that had to access to technology that we didn't think was developed until a certain point in human history, but it turns out no, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it got developed way beyond that or way before that, but you know, there's only like very tiny pieces of relics left of those 
yeah. accomplishments because that's what they did. And I think Japan was kind of the same. They did not take But it's prisoners. not limited to the Asians. Like, look at fucking no, Rwanda no. in the 90s. Look oh, at yeah. former Yugoslavia in the 90s. Yeah. It's the same shit. Everybody does that. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's cool. Genghis doesn't mean Khan. that it's right. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly, then, mm-hmm. like we said, Hitler. Yeah. Um, Stalin. Like they, Spanish Inquisition. Yeah. Like, it just does, it doesn't... Just because other people did it doesn't mean that it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's actually a very common argument for their behavior in and outside of the country. It's like, well, fucking other people did it. Shut the fuck up just because other people do it, dude. You killed 400,000 civilians. Men, women, and children. Yeah. Like they were garbage. Yeah. And did it with joy. Mm-hmm. Like some of the survivors telling stories, you're like, like, I gotta put this book down. Mm-hmm. Like, I need a break from all things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, yeah, it's pretty rough. So, I was really excited that I finished that book today. Mm. Yeah. To finish it. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want it out of my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was tough. I'm but all, yeah. but Jana asked me, why are you reading it then? And I said because it's important. Because not enough people know, know about it. Yeah. About it. Yeah. And I didn't. And I need to. People need to. History is important. Yeah, it's very it important. It teaches us just how messed up people have always been. Mm-hmm. And the accomplishments. Sure. As well. I mean, it wasn't all rape and war every day, every year. Well, from Japanese perspective, it was an accomplishment. Yeah, true enough. No, but I mean, you know, um, when I say accomplishment, I'm talking about things like, you know, the establishment of technologies and... Sure, landing on the moon. Various societal advances and so on and so forth. But, um, yeah. So. Nicely reading. uh, Yeah, I'd say. I'm 80% through... Alastair Reynolds' Revelation Space. Uh, It has uh, given me impetus to want to read the next book, even before I'm finished this one. And no, I'm not going to bother reading reviews this time before I make the leap. Good. (laughs) Good. Um, and, And the reason I'm not worried anyway about that story being repeated just in a slightly different context by this author is this author is obviously building an arc of a story like you can tell okay so let us slowly introduce you to the players now let us evolve the story towards its first conclusion and oh, by the way, don't think you know what it's going to be because it's probably not going to be what you think it is. Mm-hmm. What a world uh, in the sense of the universe that he has built. It's just uh, really hardcore. Um, no spoilers, but remind me of what it's about. Um, without spoilers, what it's about is a guy has found himself exploring buried ruins on a planet 
and it's completely um, contradicting everything they think they know about the civilization that used to live there and that are now gone okay. without a trace. Gotcha. When was it written? Quite a while ago. Like, it's not a recent book. There's a subplot. 2000. 2000. Okay. So, you know, 23 years old. It's been uh, quite enjoyable. Good. Uh, but so dense that I've had to read it very slowly and very deliberately. Um, yeah, I'm surprised you're only at 80%. Yeah. Because it's been three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's not and short. It's, and it's not a short book either. 585 pages. Yeah. Yeah. So this uh, this episode's topic. Now, I, I may leave this in or I may cut this out. Cut it out. But I I wanted to I wanted to try to motivate you. No, seriously, I wanted I, I wanted to try to motivate you not to um, engage the topic, to try to get me to talk more about my own personal experiences in the military, so much as I would rather talk about just the military experience in general because selfishly I would rather if people want to get my perspective purely on the culture and the lifestyle to read the damn book rather than you know just give it all away in the podcast or give half of it away in the podcast I don't have any interest on what you felt when you were in the military? Huh? I don't have any interest on hearing how you felt or your experiences while in the military. I would like to know what it's like just to be in the military. Do you think you'd be comfortable speaking generally about such a topic? I'm going to throw this coffee at you. <laughs> so, do you think, just asking... Do you think that authors, when they go on their book tour, they don't talk about what's in their book? Yeah. Okay. Right. Yes. Because it usually, usually, develops intrigue for the book. Mm -hmm. So they give pieces of stories, but not all of it. Okay. Fine. But no, no, no not okay, made, fine. You've made your point. Quit fighting like my wife. You've made your point. And yeah, I realize now that I've said those words out loud that it does sound kind of stupid. But it doesn't sound stupid. But, but like I said, how that's much shit why did you cut from the book? How much did I cut? Yeah, didn't make it. Nothing. You wow, good editor. <laughs> well, no. No, every story you wanted to tell, you told. If I didn't want to tell it, I didn't put it into words in the first place. Most of what I put into words. I didn't cut back on, I just expanded on. Sure, sure. I guess I'm just thinking like stories about you fucking making macaroni. Like that's not in the book, I imagine, because you've talked about it before, because if it's in the book, we're fucked. Everything that you've planned is now broken. But You mean you... like making craft dinner up yeah, in the Yeah, yeah. Of course it's in the fucking book. Oh, no. Just not that book. Oh, my God. The other one that's just about alert. Right, right. 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 
But yeah, no, because, you know, those were things that I found unusual. You know, the, the macaroni story isn't about macaroni. It's no. about why would a bunch of fuckers who have access to, like, the best-made meals in the world, made by chefs who actually enjoy what they're doing and have been given the freedom not to follow the military menu for the week like all the other mess halls in all the other bases have to do, why would you forego that and make fucking craft dinner in your kitchenette of your house, of your fucking, you know, barracks? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, what are you, fucking stupid? Yeah. Go to the mess hall and have the fucking veal cutlets, for fuck's sake, and finish it off with a nice slice of cherry pie or whatever. But no. We are so fucking spoiled by what we are provided in that particular circumstance that we actually go, oh, I don't feel like my take it for granted. Tonight. Yeah, you take it for granted and you go, I just want to make craft dinner because... Oh, and yeah. I miss craft dinner. Right. Oh, that's... Yeah, of course. Like, you know, like yeah. anybody that's had it before knows what that's about. It's a craving that you just cannot fucking deny on some days. Some genetic... It's just weird way it's bonded with your DNA. Okay. So, but no, no I, I but understand. No. Well, I understand why. Um, no, if I do my, ask a question, my restrictive request is it's, ridiculous. It's difficult. Yes, is what it's it is. ridiculous. It's very difficult. <laughs> so now that we've got that out of the way, I don't think we have it out of the way. Well, I want it. I, I want we'll it out of the way. Have it out of the way. Every podcast from now on will be like, "Okay, we're not talking about Carl, right?" <laughs> uh, okay, go. Have you ever wondered how you would have done if you joined the military? Did you ever want to join the military? <laughs> no, no, I have seen the. Uh, I have seen the movie Full Metal Jacket, <laughs> and I absolutely would hide a donut in my locker, and I would be beaten with socks full of soap. No, man. The thing is, that makes me laugh, because that is such a fictional fucking of story. Of course it is. It's not like that at all. No, but... And it might have been, in some <clears throat> units, similar to that. And in the States. Yeah, but no, not here. No, I never had, I never had the inclination to join the military, and it remind, it gave me the same sensation as going to prison. Mm. It absolutely did. And either that came from a place of extensive knowledge or a, la a total lack mm -hmm. of knowledge. Yeah, it just, it was never, ever my jam. So are you, like... If someone was to come up to you and say, uh, should we even have a military? Are we spending too much on our military? Should or, or, or not enough? What, what are your feelings on it? Honest well, feelings. the first ones are, I have no idea what we spend. Right. Second of all, I have no idea what we spend it on. Right. In regards to the military. Got it. Do you know what our military actually do on a day-to-day -day basis? Oh, absolutely not. Okay. No, I, uh, the only way that I know the military is 
through the news. glorified bullshit. Not even the news, oh, okay. dude. Okay. Like movies. Right. Right? Like that's all that I know. Okay. Which for me served as a deterrent from any interest. Mm-hmm. But um I know that the or I feel that I know that the big money to the south creates a whole bunch of crazy technologies that mm-hmm. eventually trickle down to consumer. Mm-hmm. And that and I say the south because they've way more money per capita than we do. Mm-hmm. So um, innovation is obviously going to be more significant. Mm-hmm. Protect our borders, protect our allies, wear blue hats sometimes. Mm-hmm. We're not doing a lot of that anymore, We don't, unfortunately. Not, no, we are not. No. No, not nearly enough. And that kind of, <laughs> and I may be wrong about this, mm-hmm. uh, but that kind of changed, because Canada, the Canadian military was pretty well known for its peacekeeping operations. Uh, we were usually called in when the fighting stopped. Right. To stand between the warring factions. Right, trading body parts. And, and stop them from, to keep them stopped. Like ceasefire time? Yeah, ceasefire time. Gotcha. Uh, depending on which conflict we're talking about, uh, two sides would test the Canadians' metal at keeping everybody civil. You know, like, oh, they, they can't really stop us from, oh, fuck, they can, okay. So they're, they, they are playing for real here. Um, but for the most part, uh, and, and that kind of added to, I think, the respect that was um, uh, earned by uh, people around the world about our peacekeeping abilities. Could you elaborate more on how either of the sides would test the Canadians? Like, what does that mean? Um, if it was decided that in the truce, one side couldn't cross a certain line Mm -hmm. or couldn't attack the other side or couldn't attack the peacekeepers or, you know, the, the, the whole point of peacekeepers is to keep the peace. So rules are usually drawn out at the ceasefire and the peacekeepers are there to make sure that those rules are enforced and that no one breaks them on either side. And because in a conflict that has to be kept, where the two sides have to be kept apart once the ceasefire is uh, called, there, each side believes they're right. Of course. So when the peacekeepers arrive, in the back of their mind, they are always thinking, we could probably get them to kind of side with us. Right. You know, uh, and, and so they try different things to see whether or not we're on their side or on the other's side. And so, you know, they'll try to, they'll try to bribe soldiers, they'll try to disobey the rules of the ceasefire and see what happens. Um, and uh, the Canadians are basically given um, the, by their commanders, uh, okay, if, if, this is, if they try this, this is what we will do in response. 
if they try that, this is what we will do in response. Um, but you're not allowed to uh, you you're not allowed to retaliate. No engagement. No engagement unless your life is threatened. Okay. Uh, and but report everything that you observe, and then we will kind of evaluate the situation and decide what we're going to do as a response. When we went to to um, uh, Bosnia Herzegovina, um, the fighting hadn't actually ended. The Serbs and the Bosnians were still trying to kill each other. They just were pretending that they had stopped. And um, the guys that I knew that were over there said they, they were confronted several times by both sides, but especially the Serbians. The Serbians always threw their weight around like, hey, this is our fucking country, like, fuck off. You're not going to tell us what to do, where we can go, what we can do, whatever. And um, there were times where the Canadians had to go from one place to another and they would get to a Serbian checkpoint and the Serbians would be like, uh, you can't, you're not allowed to come through. And the Canadians would be like, uh, no, actually we are. This isn't your territory anymore. This is, this is no man's land. This is the buffer zone between the two sides. We have authority here, uh, and if you don't like it, you can go talk to our commander. And um, they were actually quite taken aback by the fact that we were not in any way uh, intimidated by them, by their their bullying. And uh, but it was that they had some close calls. <laughs> they were shit. They were acting the part, right. but in their you know, inside, terrified. they were terrified. They were yeah. shaking in their boots yeah. that, you know, the Serbs might kill them or take them prisoner or whatever. Where the whole image of Canadian peacekeeping, I think, kind of went down the shitter was what happened in Somalia. And what happened in Somalia, based on what I know, what I've been told, may not be the whole picture, but... You were out by then? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. Um, no, I wasn't. I remember now because of the consequences of what happened. Prior to Somalia, we always sent soldiers who, whose primary mission was never kill everyone. Go in and wipe everything out. Wipe everyone out. That was the Airborne's job. The Airborne's job was to be dropped in, right in the thick of it all, establish a, a front, and move. Clear it out. That's not the job of a peacekeeper. The job of a peacekeeper is to stop any more fighting from happening. If it breaks out, you defend against it. But in the best case scenario, you're just standing there, watching making sure that everyone's behaving. It's not exciting work, but it's honorable work because you're keeping two sides that have said they are done fighting and you're making sure that they stay true, stay true to that promise. Then came Somalia. All of the units who could have gone weren't ready because they had already, they had just come back from something else, 
And they usually don't send a unit back out into an operational theater like that uh, without giving them a chance to recuperate and retrain and re-equip and be with their families and so for at least like six months or nine months. And so they basically looked around, they went, nope, 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 oh, the airborne, send them. And the airborne commander was like, uh, no. You don't send my guys into a peacekeeping scenario. You send my guys when the peacekeepers couldn't keep everybody behaving themselves. And, you know, start showing them who's boss. Um, or, you know, to capture a strategic uh, right. thing in a war. Um, and they were like, no, fuck it. Your guys are going. And the commander quit. So they found another commander who agreed to take them over there. And they went over there. And what the original commander predicted would happen, happened. Which was, uh, the Somalis tried to poke the bear. And the Canadians just went, fuck you. And everybody was like, whoa, hang on a second. That's not how we're supposed to do this. And the airborne were like, whoo, airborne. Because that's that was their, you know what I mean? That's their role. You don't send a tiger to yeah. be a babysitter. Right. Right? Um, but uh, the airborne were blamed for screwing up. And there, um, nothing they could possibly say. How do you explain to the press that the reason the Canadian soldiers did what they did is because they sent the wrong kind of soldier. So the airborne regiment took the whole brunt of the blame for what happened in Somalia. And as punishment for what they did, they were disbanded. Weird. Except they weren't. Mm. The regiment was disbanded but all they did was take all the people who were qualified airborne soldiers and attach them as airborne sections to all the other army units around the country. So we still had an airborne capability. It was now just scattered across the country. Uh, but the damage had been done. Our reputation as peacekeepers was now gone. gone. It, it, was, it was sullied very badly. But at the same time, the government of Canada and the upper echelon of the military were kind of like, okay, well, fuck it. Maybe that's not what we, maybe, maybe we should li stop limiting ourselves to being the peacekeepers of the world mm. and, and start showing the world that we're just as effective a fighting force as anybody else. And so, you know, uh, we got involved in, in, uh, Bosnia and, and uh, Serbia and Kosovo and Afghanistan because um, uh, the government and the military as a whole felt that they could do just as good of a job as the Americans or the Brits or the Australians or whomever they sent over there. And in fact, they were working hand in hand with those guys. And um, they did a really good job, but you know, now the whole kind of image of the military had sort of evolved from these are the people you send 
to keep people from fighting each other to these are the people you send when you want to kill people. Uh, yeah, when you want to get the job done. Which is kind of interesting because prior to the 60s, that's the reputation we had had in World War II. Right. Yeah, and World War One, And like, World War One. We were... Oh, yeah. I, I know we that. Ass. I know that we were... We kicked ass. Yeah. Never mind the fact that I don't think the average person today realizes just how big of a force we used to have. Mm-hmm. Like at the end of World War II, we were the third biggest Navy in the world. I didn't know that. Crazy. The third biggest. That's surprising. Surpassed only by Britain and the United States. By the time I joined in 1979, it was a shadow of its former self. And we didn't, we weren't, we weren't really doing anything major. We were just participating in UN missions. But they were fucked. I had no idea just how prevalent, like just how many different places you could go uh, on a UN mission. Because some of these UN missions lasted for years and years and years. We had missions all over Africa. We had missions in the Middle East. What countries uh, now serve as Blue Helmets? Because the role must still... A lot. Yeah. A lot. Including Surprisingly, us? yeah, but nowhere near as much as we used to. Right. And that's partly because there are a lot more countries that provide gotcha. UN uh, troops wearing the Blue Beret. Um, surprisingly, a lot from Africa, um, yeah. Australia... Like all over, really. Yeah, it's, it's really incredible how many more countries now participate in UN missions than ever did before. And part of that is uh, a lot of countries, especially developing countries, they like being involved in UN peacekeeping missions because that's partly how they pay their dues of being UN members. And it also gives them a chance to show the world that they can be taken seriously as a, as a force. One of the things that I found kind of interesting about what's happening in the military lately is all the stories of assault and abuse of power that happened back in the 70s, 80s, 90s and the 2000s that are only coming to light now, which is really pissing a lot of people off because the ones who um, got away with that kind of behavior thought they had it made, thought it was all behind them now. And now all of a sudden people are coming out of the woodwork, men and women, uh, telling their stories finally about the shit that they had to go through at the... Uh, uh, at the hands of their um, former colleagues and especially uh, leaders. It's been really interesting to watch because as I hear, as I heard the stories, I would think to myself, you know, we never heard those stories from anyone's mouth while I was in the service. But we, saw, we always had this thought that something was going on that was unspoken that was that had remained unspoken because there was definitely um there was definitely a feeling of 
that if you wielded any kind of power in the military because of your rank and or position in a unit, you could get away with fucking murder if you wanted to. Because it really is that close-knit of a club mm -hmm. that if you did bad things, it was more likely that you would be protected by your peers and your leaders than taken to task for those transgressions. And the reason that we all came to those conclusions is because every once in a while you'd hear a story or become aware of someone who did something really bad and nothing ever fucking came of it. Nothing. Case in point. Close to home. Darlene's first husband. He was a serial rapist. Mm. And while they were in Germany, posted there, he raped a German girl who was hitchhiking on the side of the road. Mm. And when she went to the authorities, and the authorities came to the military base and said, this guy raped this girl and took advantage of her, the military was like, it's her word against his. We're siding with him. And that was the end of that, mm. which was unfortunate. Mm. Because had they prosecuted him, he would have gone to jail. And not just regular jail, my friend. Right. Military fucking jail. And military jail? Oh, that makes civilian jail look like the Taj fucking Mahal. Military jail, as it turns and I only know this because I know people who went to it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Military jail, you cannot speak unless you are spoken to. From the moment you get up till the moment you go to bed, you are basically doing whatever the fuck they want you to do. That could be cleaning toilets with a toothbrush, urinals, polishing brass, sweeping the parking lot, whatever. And you're doing whatever they tell you to do for however many days you have a sentence for. For a transgressor, you know, for, for getting caught doing something that the military considered to be bad. So had he been prosecuted and sent to military prison... He would have had a very bad year to two years. And then the moment he got released from military prison, he would have been booted from the military. And then the German authorities would have been standing there right at the gate going, Oh, mister, come with us, please. Mm -hmm. And they would have then prosecuted him in civilian court. And he would have had to go through the whole process again and then probably ended up in German jail unless the Canadians found a way to get him back into Canada and said, don't worry, we'll prosecute him when he gets back to, to Canada. But they didn't. They swept it all under the carpet. And as a result, he did it again and again and again. And when the RCMP finally got a sense of who this guy was, um, all of the women that they had found out he had abused uh, refused to come forward because they feared for their lives. 
and or didn't want to relive the the horror of what had happened. They literally called Darlene, begging her if she would come and testify. She's like, no fucking way. He knows where I live. So, yeah, um, there, there was always this sense that if you were in a position of power in the military, you, you could potentially get away with a lot of shit. Not so much the little guy or the little girl, but the people in power, the people in authority. And I started to see uh, just what kind of things they got away with that weren't really that, you know, awful, but just like, they did what? <laughs> right? Yeah. And you were just kind of like, holy shit, like, didn't even know that was a thing. And then, you know, you find out that, no, that's actually something that happens all the time. Mm. But you have to reach a certain fucking level within the the culture before you even become aware that those things happen or that those things go on. So, yeah, it was kind of a it was kind of a fucked up uh, thing, and, and I'm actually glad that uh, all these accusers were coming out of the woodwork. The only unfortunate part about it is, of course, everybody that was being accused were all painting this of, oh, this is somebody who felt that they had been wronged by not getting promoted by me or whatever, blah, blah, blah. blah. Why, or why did they wait 25 years to come for, you know, the usual, the usual uh, uh, kickbacks when you're accused of having done something wrong a long time ago. It's, everybody tries to defend it by saying, well, if it was such a bad thing, why didn't they come forward right away? Just like the Hollywood thing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was uh, very interesting to watch. And then when I had a chance to talk while I was researching for my book, because I felt like I was doing a pretty good job of painting the picture of what it was like while I was in, but I had lost touch with how did it evolve from then on? What does the military of to, yeah. yeah, okay. What does the military of today look like? What are they how do they behave? What kind of rules do they have to follow? Is it as strict for them as it was for us? Um and luckily, I still kept in contact with two guys who were very close friends of mine while I was in, and still are to this day. One of them is ex-military and is now a full-time instructor in the same type of school that I taught in, trade school, while I was in the service. Except he's doing it as a civilian instructor, but all his students are military technologists. And then the other guy is a, is a former uh, regular force officer who used to command whole units and is now uh, basically a reserve officer who sort of consulting mm -hmm. as a, an, an officer type for various uh, projects uh, and attached to certain units as a sort of a, like, a, like an associate officer, if you will. And I had a chance to sit down uh, and talk with both of them for a, a long time about how things had changed and um, whether the today's soldier has to deal with the same shit that we had to deal with in terms of the restrictions and 
the rules and, and everything else. And they were like, oh, fuck, no, it's totally different, dude. And, you know, they would start talking about what's allowed now. And, you know, because I was really curious to see how the military had changed since they legalized marijuana. Because I knew there were restrictions around it. But now that it's legal, they can't say you can't do it. But while we were in the military, it was forbidden right. to do drugs. Yep. Like, if you were caught, you were, you were under threat of being booted out. Um, and it was even worse if they found out that you were dealing drugs to other military members right. while you were in the military. Uh, which is hilarious because one of our colleagues in trade school at the very beginning of our careers was a guy who used to be a drug dealer and was told by a judge, okay, pal, jail, army, pick one. So, of course, he picked army. And, you know, they were stupid. The military was stupid enough to think that, oh, well, he's not going to deal drugs anymore. <laughs> He was the guy. And the military, I don't know whether they were actually fooling themselves into believing the poll that they put out at one point in the late 80s, early 90s. Only 15% of the military uh, culture are active drug users, according to our surveys, our anonymous surveys. Mm -hmm. They're totally anonymous. We laughed ourselves silly right. when we saw the results of that survey. Because we knew it was way higher than that. Way higher. Like, I was constantly shocked how it would be slowly revealed to me who was partaking. Mm. Who we thought, there's no fucking way. What? Yes? <laughs> mm. <laughs> no way. All right. <laughs> you know, it was crazy. It was crazy. So that I wanted crazy. to know, I wanted to know, okay, so how is it now? Right. And it's just like unrecognizable. The dress and deportment rules are all changed. Haircuts, beards, mustaches, earrings, ta visible tattoos, wacky hair colors. Anything fucking goes now. Mm. And part of it, uh, as my officer buddy agreed, was because on the one hand, I think the military uh, realized uh, you're not going to get anybody to join if you still have these same old-fashioned cultural archaic. values. Yeah. And number two, really? We're going to fucking dwell on that still? Really? Maybe we should move on to more important things. Right. You know, and uh, management finally realized that there were more important things to worry about than whether or not Buddy had a tapered fucking haircut. Because the rule back in the day used to be uh, whatever you had under your hat was yours, but anything visible had to be cut a certain way. So, <laughs> yeah, it... Uh, and, and that's how I closed out the book. I closed out the book by illustrating how things had changed. So, to go back to something that's related, unrelated, because mm. it's going to bug me unless I know, uh -huh. what happened to Darlene's ex-husband after, like, did anything ever 
or does, or is that scumbag still roaming? Oh yeah, no, he's still uh, he's still roaming the earth, committing rapes. Although, well, I don't think anymore because um, he barely has the health. He he's barely keeping himself alive at this point in his life uh, because once <clears throat> once he left the military. Um, he basically, uh, he, he didn't really make much of himself. Like, he was a technician in the first place, in the military. And when he left the military, he tried to continue being a technician. Um, but he really ended up just being like a repair guy kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, didn't really amount to much. Didn't really evolve his career much. Um, and then he got sick. Um, but there were, we had heard a couple of stories of, uh, victims after he left the military. And I think that's what got the RCMP involved because it wasn't just him. It was his brothers too that got caught or that got, you know, people were complaining against them. I mm. think he kind of got roped in, uh, because it was more than just him right. that was committing these acts. And, um, but then, yeah, he ended up getting really sick and, uh, so much so, oh, he got throat cancer is what happened. Good. And he ended up having to punch a hole in his trachea so that he could uh, breathe, which meant he couldn't talk anymore without plugging the hole with his finger. And, um, he ended up moving out here to go live close to some of his other family members in and around Edmonton, which suited uh, his daughter, my stepdaughter, fine, because they were, you know, finally reunited. Um, but uh, that created a whole bunch of drama as well. And once he realized that he wasn't in any better of a situation there than he was where he had come from, he went back to where he was but he keeps he keeps moving around because he's just never happy wherever he happens to be good leading a very to an outsider a very miserable life at this point one you know on death's door off and on for the last five to eight years let's hope it's really painful too definitely not a joyous life good well I feel better now I was so born, I was... you know Maybe in a small way, karma slowly worming its way into his life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Miserable. And no one really giving a fuck about it either. Yeah, no, that's definitely karma. Good. Yeah. So. Huh. But, yeah. Let's see. What else? I always made it clear mm. to people, especially early in my career, people I knew back home knew Carl in high school. Loser. Nobody. Probably not going anywhere. Hanging out with the wrong people. Used to be a great student. Not so much anymore. They knew that me. And then I disappeared. And then I came back. And now I'm a completely different person. Right. I'm not skinny anymore. I'm a grown man now. I seem to have a significant amount of disposable income. Having, a f having fun. Right? In, an, in a career that's just continuing to evolve. And um, 
a lot of my peers saw that, and the ones who also hadn't really made much of themselves yet, because they hadn't figured out what they wanted or probably never, in some cases, never would, were looking at what I had managed to accomplish and were going, hmm, <laughs> maybe that's, maybe I should try that. And um, it was funny because I already knew in the back of my mind that that life was not for everybody. It, it kind of does take away a lot of your freedoms and a lot of your, it imposes a new culture on you. And you have to be willing to accept that new culture. And there's a lot of people that would find that a little bit too much for their ego to take. Like, no, don't fucking tell me to get up every day at 6, fucking 5.30 in the morning. Fucking go for a 5K run. Fuck that shit. Right? I'm the boss of me. Um, so there's a lot of people who would never last in that type of an environment. And then there are some people that would. Um, and it was it was fun and interesting to watch people try. Right. Yeah. And in some cases do okay, and in other cases fucking... Film is... Oh, unbelievable. Right. Within nine months, it was over. They were done. The military was like, nope. Not even they left, just the military was like, nope. Nope. Sorry. Next! Mm -hmm. And then, like, the one guy that I used to hang out with as a kid, he finally ended up joining the military, but we never crossed paths because he was always in different places than I was. And he went in a, a, a related field, but not a tech, tech, technician side. It was more operator side. And uh, when I finally did uh, catch up with him, and I was just like, it's not the guy I used to hang out with as a kid. He was fun and jovial and funny right. and positive. And now he's depressing and negative and angry and disappointed and mad at everybody. And Like I visited him once and went, well, <laughs> guess that's that. Well, oh, it was it was depressing because... I used, you know, he was my best friend for the longest time. Right. So when I found out he had joined the military, I was like, all cool. right, yeah. maybe we're going to be friends again. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. And there were even people that I met early in my career who ended up turning into complete fucking assholes after a while, too. And unfortunately, many of them, it was because they got into a position of power mm. and they let it go to their head they really let it go to their head to the point where they felt now they were better than everybody else so unless you were at their level we we won't be socializing anymore it's right. like wow class system much <laughs> you know yeah that's weird that was that's that that was a lot to take because, you know, when you made a friend in the military, you figured, especially, and the reason you made that uh, expectation in the military, that once you made a friend, you were friends for life, is because you, you met people while you were in boot camp, and you knew there was a chance you would get to see some of them again, and 
some of them never again. And then you went to your first part of your uh, trades training, and you knew you were going to run into those people again, and you did. And then you went into the trade you were specializing in, and you trained with a bunch of those people, while being in the institution that was also training all of the people who had come before you in the same job, who you would not only be working with at various points in your career, but also then reconnecting back at the school every time you came back for more training, which was a lot, a lot. And then, you know, you'd like go to alert for six months and, holy fuck, I haven't seen you in like six years or whatever, right? Or, you know, you'd get posted somewhere and then be reintroduced to people that you hadn't seen for a short time or a long time. Um, so there was always this expectation that anybody that you met uh, was a potential friend for life. Because you were always, there was always going to be the, the chance that you would run into them again. And it was great to reconnect because Good. with all these moves and being thrown into these... You're really lonely. Yeah, like mm. under normal circumstances, like a civilian, fuck. You know, imagine a civilian being told by their head office, okay, sorry, I know, I know you love Calgary and you've got all this stuff mm -hmm. uh, set up with your family and your friends, but now you have to work in Hamilton, Ontario. Well, yeah, it's, you off just you listen, go. You just listen to military kids. They go through that. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, you know, uh, at least we had that that mm -hmm. we could look forward to, that whenever we were going to go to somewhere new... Uh, there was always a chance that there would be at least a handful of people that we knew from before who we could reconnect with and uh, rely on as people who would uh, help you out, help you through it. And then on top of that, you, made, you met even more new people. Right. Right. Anyway, that was good. Buy my book, please. Where do they find your book? Amazon. Called Signal Path. And if you like that book, there's another smaller book called The Fox, the Wolf, and the Zoo that's just about my tour in alert for six months over the winter in the dark. That was an adventure. And it's gotten good reviews. That's good. Yeah. I'm actually quite happy. Which one? Uh, both of them. But good. Um, I was really curious what people were going to think of the, the one about the whole career. Because, again, you know, you're just telling your story and you don't know whether people are going to connect with it or not. Yeah, it's interesting to you and your significant other. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, cool. And people were just, you know, saying, actually, this is a really great story. And I just wanted to keep reading. I'm like, good, great. That's what I was going for. Music? Watching Rocky. Yeah. While watching hockey highlights. Yeah, that's that's what I've been doing. I'm not I'm not gonna be fully investing myself in hockey until one or another or both Canadian team make it past this round. And it's not looking good for one of them. <laughs> They're already down two games against a team that shouldn't even have made it this far. So great. Oh but at so least great. Tampa Bay's not in it anymore, which I love. It's unbelievable to me that Boston isn't in it. It's unbelievable to everybody. Like, what? <laughs> Didn't they, like, set a record for most wins in they the did. NHL They're season? the most winningest team that's ever existed. Like, and they're out in the first round. Yep. 
<laughs> bye bye to the team that just squeaked. Yeah, in. yeah, and now they're doing it to the to the Leafs. Yeah, but the Leafs are doing them to themselves. Oh, they're enough. terrible. Because their leader's got the worst mustache that ever existed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Austin. I once was a porn star, Matthews. Oh, not even. If he had a porn star mustache, you could at least well, I'll wanna be, he just, I'll wanna be porn mustache. Oh, God. I think he just forgot how to shave. It's so bad. <laughs> yeah, and Colorado's out. Yeah. Nuts. Yeah. Bonkers. It's been so exciting. It's been a long time since there's been such a big mix-up that it's just been fun. Yeah. And it's so nice to cheer against Edmonton. And I don't think... Oh, you're not even hoping for Edmonton to get through? Fuck Edmonton. <laughs> Fuck Edmonton. Well, I'd like to see one Canadian team Why? the distance. Every team is filled with Canadians. Fuck Canadian teams. They're all Canadian teams. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, they are. Pretty much. Pretty much. I got a kick out of uh, that, that uh, father-daughter. Those that pe- keep man. cheering for everybody but the Leafs. But... Yeah. So many. They own We're in the opposite so team's jersey in all the games. It's so great. So many jerseys. Uh, and it, like the shittiest teams. Like they have a fucking Arizona Coyotes jersey. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is hockey the only sport you follow? Yeah. Yeah, me too. When I get the desire, I'll watch. Um, that F1 series on Netflix, and then I'll be really into F1 for a little oh, yeah. bit. Yeah. yeah. That is a pretty good series. Yeah, I find every other... Like, I'll, I enjoy baseball. I'm a highlights watcher of baseball. Right. Um, or physically at a game. Okay. But I won't watch one on TV. No. Um, and I've been to ball games when I was younger. I'd mm-hmm. go watch the Expos in Jerry Park. Sure. Yeah. And again, because it's an it's more an event than watching a sport. Oh, yeah. Well, it's because it has to be. Because it's long. Yeah. Yeah, it's long and... You go there and you enjoy a fucking baseball stadium hot dog and a beer and or two or five. Yep. And you do a lot of people watching and... Oh, look, somebody hit the ball. Oh, look, it's coming this way! <laughs> I've yeah. only been to one ball game, and that was when I was in San Diego. That was fun. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it. Watched the Padres and the Dodgers. It was cool. Yeah. We had fun. I'd, I'd absolutely go again. Mm-hmm. But I think that's probably true with any sport. Like, really, if I got tickets to an NBA game, I would absolutely go. And it would be a fucking blast. Mm. And same thing with a football game. Like, that's, that is theater. Right. Yeah. Like, I go to a Canadian football game, and it's like, all right, but it's usually really fucking cold out, so it's yeah, not that exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've ever been to a live football game or basketball. And uh, I remember when um, Darlene introduced me to her sister and her husband, and we went to visit them in Ontario, and uh, he was like, so, you into basketball? And I'm like, no. And he's like, well, I'm into basketball. What kind of basketball? College basketball. And we just, we were happy oh, to be there uh, March? on the big weekend. Yeah. yeah. In, oh, fuck. 
March Madness. That's all dude. he did was That's watch all basketball. They do, man. For the whole fucking weekend. I was in Vegas once during March Madness. It was oh. fucking nuts. I bet. It was nuts. It's just fat dudes in jerseys that don't fit watching TVs in every casino. Yeah. Screaming, yeah. holding their Bud Lights. Yeah. It was wild. Mm-hmm. It was a spectacle. Mm-hmm. It's like that anyway when you go to Vegas and it's like football. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and see, and March Madness was crazy. And like, I don't know what it is about, well, college, everything. College football, college basketball, Even Army, college Navy, baseball? like fucking the yeah. rivalries yeah, they're in the real, states. They're real. Between the teams? It's take no prisoners, man. Yeah, it's real. It's insane. Yep. And the product's good. Oh, yeah. Right? It, like, I mean, you know, if you're into it, yeah. It's yeah, high yeah, quality that's what shit. I mean. Yeah, like if you're into it, yeah, like it's, it's, it's a good product. It's not like going to a Hitman game. No. Not that there's anything wrong with a Hitman game. But Except like that there is. Whole, right, it's just a whole other... A whole other yeah. uh, level of the stratosphere. Have you ever been to like a... Uh, Minor game though, like like the Wranglers, for example. You ever been to? No, but I've heard that's something to see. Well, they are NHL players, basically, or almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, like that's they're farm team players, as best as you can yeah. get. Yeah, right. And the tickets are significantly cheaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> significantly. <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh, in fact, I'm very interested in maybe taking in a Wranglers game. If they advance significantly... Uh, they have. They're in the second round. Right, exactly. So maybe next round? I might catch them if I can, if I'm around. My problem is I'm going on vacation in a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. So the timing might not quite be right. Yeah, I think it would be fun. It's nice that the farm team's now in town, right? So, like, you can see the players that are going to be here potentially on mm-hmm. the team mm-hmm. just by going down there and watching a game, but when they were in a farm city away in the States, you just never got the opportunity. Bye. Say bye, Adam. Bye, Adam. (laughs) My back's itchy. (laughs) Well, I ain't scratching it. I'm not asking. All right.